Hey, thanks for listening. We've got a great show this week. Earnings season has begun. We've got a lot going on, including a special announcement about this program. We will get to that. It's all brought to you by Molecule which is reimagining the future of clean air, starting with the air purifier. For 10% off your first air purifier, visit Molecule.com, that's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com, and use the promo code FOOL10 at checkout. Thanks also to LinkedIn for supporting this week's show. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills that you're looking for, so you can hire the right person fast. Find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. Get $50 off your first job post at LinkedIn.com. Slash fool. Okay, let's do the show. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week, senior analyst Jason Moser, Emily Flippin, and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always. Hey, hey. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We've got an update on the video streaming wars. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with the big banks. Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and J.P. Morgan Chase all hitting 52-week highs this week in the wake of their fourth quarter reports. Jason Moser. You host the financials episode of I do. our industry-focused podcast every week. What stood out to you? Uh, well, I mean, banks have sort of started off 2020 the way they finished up 2019, right? I mean, it was it was a good year in 2019, and it seems like uh, things are going in the right direction. I think the big theme for banks right now is how they're dealing with interest rates in relation to their guidance, uh, particularly in regard to the net interest income for the coming quarters. Because I think a year ago, we all probably around this table thought interest rates would be you know, a good bit higher than yep. they were back then, and then that's, that's fair. You know, I'll we're take not, your criticism. We're dealing with the the flip side of that coin, and and that makes banks' uh, task a little bit more difficult in maintaining and growing profitability. But I think for the most part, they are navigating this pretty well. The nice thing about lower rates is, in a lot of cases, bond trading is up for these businesses. And so, you see a company like uh, JP Morgan, for example, fixed income markets grew 86% from a year ago. So, that's where they're able to make up a little bit, a little bit of lost ground. Uh, with Wells Fargo, it, they're bigger fish to fry beyond just the numbers, right? I mean, we're talking about having to fix an entire culture. Uh, Bank of America, uh, a reasonable quarter as well, given their, their exposure to the consumer. I think, in times like these, I like to look the, to the efficiency ratio with a lot of these banks to just understand and how they're managing the business. You look at Bank of America, JP Morgan, I mean, efficiency ratio is staying within that 58, 59 range. Uh, Wells Fargo, efficiency ratio of 78.6. And that was versus 63.6 a year ago. Uh, and a lot of that is due to litigation uh, expenses and, and the operating losses that stem from those. Uh, but I mean, I, I feel like maybe at least Wells Fargo has uh, the, the leadership question out of, out of the way now. And, and we'll just have to see how they proceed the rest of the year. Well, the low interest rate environment's bad for some of these big banks' business, but there are some that are diversified. And the low interest rate environment actually means that there's a lot more activity in the market that they can service. Morgan Stanley, I think, was a good example of that this quarter. Despite the lower interest rates, I mean, we're seeing a lot more M&A activity, which supported their business, um, more IPOs, which supported their business. So they had a big boost from what I suspect was the Alibaba secondary listing in Hong Kong. That really helped their their. It wasn't explicitly stated. That's what I suspect it was. But I think it was something to this tune of 600 million in revenue associated with investment management from those IPOs. So, 
because lower interest rates are abound right now, I mean, it does suppress some parts of the business, but it gives opportunities in other areas. Uh, Ron, uh, Jason mentioned the leadership question at Wells Fargo. Charles uh, Scharf, who's been CEO for about three months, he's going to have one more quarter under his belt as CEO at Wells Fargo before the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. I mean, this is Buffett's bank. Is it safe to assume that uh, there are going to be some questions for Mr. Buffett at the annual meeting about Wells Fargo? Mr. Buffett, for sure. And, and oh, Chuck, I do not envy you over <laughs> at Wells Fargo. Um, I do appreciate how transparent is being. He's using phrases like terrible mistakes and I don't have all the answers yet. Um, he came out and said in the latest call he doesn't think any of the public issues will be closed this year, certainly not all of them. They've got 12 public enforcement actions out there right now. He's really spending all his time putting out these fires rather than being a CEO and getting this bank back on its footing from an operations perspective and a growth perspective. It is not an easy job. Obviously, as you say, Buffett's a big shareholder. Um, for the most part, he has given them a pass, at least publicly, um, but I'm sure he will be on the hot seat. Yeah, Sharf is right now caught between a rock and a hard place because he has to appease regulators and and uh, bring in uh, more employees in order to help get this bank's books back in order. Uh, but by the same token, I mean, he took dead aim at their cost structure in the call, calling it too high. So, I mean, he has to figure out a way to balance the efficiency of the bank, making it a more efficient operation, while at the same point, uh, appeasing to regulators, at least throughout the rest of the year, to convince them that he's got this company back on the straight and narrow. Last fall, the National Retail Federation predicted that holiday sales would be 4% higher than a year ago. That flew in the face of some economists who predicted it would be just 2% higher. And Emily, this week, the NRF out with their report up 4.1%. They kind of nailed it. They did nail it. It's not surprising coming from the National Retail Federation. However, there are lots of, like you mentioned, economists and um, companies out there that are kind of you know, touting a different story. If you go back uh, to the fall, people were especially concerned because the trade war um, was still kind of raging on. The increase of cost of a lot of consumer goods products as a result of the trade war had some people uh, believing that maybe consumer consumption would be down, right? Buying less toys because they're more expensive, for instance. Uh, there was also concerns about the fact that 2018 was a great retail season, so the year-over-year numbers may look less impressive, simply because we're being compared to a already really great previous year. Uh, but nonetheless, it was about 4.1% increase year-over-year, which is outstanding, and like you said, right there along with the National Retail Federation predicted. Um, but it really depends on where you look at these numbers, because while that 4.1% is an average, it's not the same all the different departments within that retail number. There, for instance, um, department stores, they were down 5.4%. So, uh, universally, not looking great for kind of your legacy retailers that would typically do really well during the holiday season. Um, general merchandise stores were up about 1.4%. So, that's your discount retailers, your Costco's, those did pretty well. Yeah, Ron, on last week's show, we talked about. Costco's holiday sales. We don't have holiday numbers out of Walmart yet, but this week we did get them from Target, and surprisingly, they were pretty weak. I will admittedly, yeah, I was shocked. Um, very surprising. I thought they were well set up for this holiday. Uh, their November, December comp sales up just 1.4%. That's versus 5.7% a year ago. Their digital sales up 19%, which in a vacuum sounds good, but that's versus 29% last year. I thought they were well positioned with some Disney locations in house bringing in the toys um, from Disney um, into many of their stores. They ran their website, uh, the relaunched Toys R Us brand website. 
I really thought that this was going to be a strong holiday season. I'm very surprised. I think, and what I speculate is that people aren't spending less; they're just changing what they're spending on. So while typically people would spend a lot of money on toys and electronics, increasingly I think pe- people are spending money on experiences. And so maybe the you know the money itself is being diverted into different areas. One of the bright sides for Target was actually their online sales, which are up nearly 20 percent year over year during the quarter. So I think people are really taking advantage of that. You know, Target two. F- day free shipping. Uh, so if you don't have an online store presence at this point, if you're not competing in that market, I think it could really hurt your business. What do we make of Five Below? Because that's a discount retailer that came out with a pretty bad guidance uh, for the fourth quarter. Uh, the stock hit a 52-week low this week. It sort of bounced back because even though they haven't done well over the last couple of months in terms of their own internal targets. They're sticking by their plan to open up another 180 locations in 2020. That boosts their store count by 20%, Ron. That's aggressive, and I would just say they should really make sure that they have their merchandising um, down pat before they move into continued aggressive growth. They're blaming six fewer shopping days between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Everybody has six fewer uh, shopping uh, days. That's what I was about to say, so that doesn't really do it for me. I don't love blaming the calendar. In certain circumstances, I guess it's warranted. But they should make sure they have their ducks in a row before going out and building more stores. Yeah, that that feels like a cop-out to me. And it's not just because everybody else also had the same six days less, but it's actually Actually, because they posted a same store sales decrease of 2% versus a pretty substantial increase that they had previously guided. And that's not a surprise. We all knew the calendar when we made the guidance, right? So, what that says to me is that management um, is. I want to say uh, overlooking some very basic, uh, you know, calendar days at the best, or just being downright, um, you know, poor in their planning. Trying to use the correct words here, not say anything too strong. But point is, is that I, I've lacked a little bit of faith in management at this point because they can't do some simple math. Don't give up on Target, though. I, I still think they're well positioned. Only trading at 17 times. That's versus Walmart at 22, Costco at 34 times. I think this one may have some legs. So instead of the bullseye, perhaps we could say the Target hit the bear's eye this holiday season. Right? <laughs> we could say that, but we Jeez. we won't. This week in apparel spinoffs, Tailored Brands, the parent company of Joseph A. Bank and Men's Warehouse, is selling its Joseph Abood line to a private equity firm for $115 million. And remember last February when Gap announced it's planning to spin off Old Navy as its own public company? I do. This week, Gap said, <laughs> never mind about that. We're not spinning it off. Um, let's stick with Gap for a minute, because uh, before we started the yeah. show, Ron, I was saying to you, boy, this. I understand that they probably have good financial reasons for backing off this plan, but it really makes the business of the Gap look weak. The business of Gap is weak, and, and so it should look that way. <laughs> Don't cupcake it, Ron. <laughs> you know, I, I recall that over. I guess it was really the last two quarters when we saw Old Navy report, and the results had been weaker than than in previous years and in previous quarters. We were scratching our heads a little bit, and we said, "I wonder if this is going to happen." And for the most part, I think we thought it would continue. Um, we were a little off the mark there. Um, if it's the right thing to do to scrap it, then for, by all means, it should have been scrapped. They're you know saying the cost and complexity, the separation combined with that business uh, weak business performance uh, limited the value that would be created as a result of the spinoff. That could very well be the case, um, and in that case, you know you want you want to keep these things together. 
But these businesses are weak, and if you don't get the right merchandise managers in there, um, whether it's Banana Republic, Gap, Old Navy, you're going to continue to see weak comp sales. You're going to continue to be promotional, um, and it's going to continue to cause problems. Their only bright spot here in this report is that there were fewer discounts they're claiming during the holiday season. They were less promotional. That will help full year earnings, but still, things things are not. Not strong. What about tailored brands? Because there were some people out there who thought, okay, Just Fay Bank, Men's Warehouse, um, they're not great standalone businesses. Maybe if these two merge, they get together, they get the store countdown, there's a plan for them to grow. Does selling off the Joseph Abood line, I mean, it gets them a check for $115 million, but at this point, I don't know the management well enough and therefore don't trust them enough <laughs> to spend that money wisely. Yeah, they've they've got to do something. They've got two billion dollars in debt, almost no cash. Business is weak, um, especially over the last twelve months. So they unlock some some cash, hundred fifteen million, as you said, um, to WHP Global, which is an, an actual an acquisition firm backed by Oak Tree and BlackRock. So it's an investment firm. They retain the license, so they'll still be able to sell the merchandise from Joseph Abood. Uh, they'll pay down some debt. They'll try to continue to right size this business. They sold off their corporate business for around sixty million dollars um, back in twenty. 19. So they're they're making some moves to divest some weak things to raise cash, but they're doing it out of de- being desperate, and uh, it's the business is not strong enough really on its own. They're doing these the manipulative things to try to turn the business, and it remains to be seen if they'll be successful. I don't want to blame millennials for this, but <laughs> is this just a bad time in history to be selling men's suits? Yeah, they're actually claiming that they've had a really tough time moving to the more casual attire that 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 folks have moved to, whether it's in the workforce or, or in their personal lives. One would think they could have gotten that right by now. It's not a brand new thing, but you know, it, let's. I uh, just want to mention that they did just suspend the dividend, um, which investors typically don't like to see. But if it is the right thing to do to preserve cash, then then you got to do what you got to do. Coming up, good news for anyone who likes movies, ice cream, or better yet, both at the same time. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. All right, we'll get back to the news in just a second. But first, let's talk about you. If you're a business owner looking to grow your business, LinkedIn can help you find the right hires that can set you up for a strong year. You got a New Year's resolution? Yeah, maybe. Hiring the right person would be a good resolution to add if you're running your own business. Let's face it, it's a tight job market out there, and if you're hiring, you can't afford to waste time. And LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the right hard and soft skills that you're looking for so you can hire the right person fast. I personally am not looking for a job at the moment, but I did spend a few minutes checking out the platform. It looks great. It's easy to navigate. And it's no wonder the companies rated LinkedIn Jobs the number one hiring platform for delivering quality hires. So find the right person for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can get $50 off the first job post. Just visit linkedin.com slash fool. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Emily Flippin, and Ron Gross. New Year. New radio stations to add to the Motley Fool Money affiliate group, Woo-hoo. WPVC in Charlottesville, Virginia, and KIFG in Iowa Falls, Welcome. Iowa. Welcome we to love the family. Our, we love our radio stations. If, however, you subscribe to the podcast version of this show, we have some news we think you're going to like. Starting next Tuesday, we're going to be bringing you a brief Motley Fool Money Extra. 
Motley Fool has done a lot of interviews over the past 20 years, and we're going to be bringing you some of those highlights from business leaders, best-selling authors, and more every Tuesday. And when I say brief, Ron, I mean like three to four minutes. It's nice. A, it's an amuse-bouche. Love this idea. It's not a two-bite brownie. <laughs> it's a one-bite brownie. And I'm going to stop with the food analogies because I'm starting to get hungry. All right, let's get back to the news. This week, Visa announced the acquisition of Plaid, a financial software company, for $5.3 billion. And Jason... Shares of Visa up nearly 5% this week, despite the fact that some people, including you, think they overpaid. Yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to say they did overpay, but I think that's in the face of a market where everything is overvalued, probably, um, it, particularly in, in the fintech market. But I, with that said, I do like this deal. I mean, I, I compare it, I liken this to PayPal buying Honey. And I think it was very easy to look at that and say, you know what, PayPal's paying a lot of money for just like 17 million monthly users from, from Honey's network. But you got to flip that on its head and say, well, that gives PayPal the opportunity to plug that Honey offering into its 300 million plus users. And so here with Visa, I mean, they essentially have this opportunity now to plug Plaid technology into this massive network that they have as the world's largest payments provider. And when you look at all of the different problems that Plaid is solving from markets like personal finance, lending, business finance, consumer banking, lending and brokerage, then becomes very apparent the opportunities that exist here. So, $5.3 billion, that's 6.5% of Visa's total assets on their balance sheet. They can afford this acquisition whether they overpaid or not. And I think ultimately, this is what makes these companies like Visa and MasterCard so attractive as investments to begin with. They are so big, they have this scale, they have the ability to make acquisitions and bring competitors into the fray to make these these more complementary business models, uh, then it just boils down to making good acquisitions. I think in this case, based on what we know about Platt, it's a good acquisition. Two quick questions. Uh, first, do you think Visa overpaid because they wanted to avoid a bidding war? They just wanted to get this done, and they didn't want to drag it out. I think that's a distinct possibility. When you look at the other parties who had investments in Plaid from the beginning, I think MasterCard and American Express are on that list. Uh, they probably realized it could go one of two ways. Either get in a bidding war, or just offer a really sweetheart deal and try to knock this thing out. I think they chose the latter. Visa's a $425 billion company. The stock hit an all-time high this week. Do you think it's an expensive stock because that's a really big company. Yeah, I mean, it's a big company, but I think when you look at the market opportunity there, uh, it, it truly is global. Uh, money changes hands every day, and the move towards electronic payments is only growing. So, I, I think you have to look at it from the business owner's perspective and the longer-term perspective. It makes any valuation concerns today uh, easier to, to, to cope with. I think the icing on the cake for all the budding entrepreneurs out there is it really gives hope for people who give their company a bizarre or weird name. I mean, Plaid? <laughs> you have to believe there were detractors inside the room when the, the founders came up with that name. And uh, you know what? They got 5.3 billion reasons to smile. I mean, I'd love to see at least a show of hands company-wide <laughs> when they named it Plaid. How many people, first thing you thought of was Spaceballs? Because I know my hand's going up every time. Netflix has teamed up with Ben & Jerry's to create a new flavor, Netflix and Chilled. It's a pint of peanut butter ice cream with salty pretzel swirls and fudge brownies. And for the uh, lactose intolerant, there is a non-dairy version with almond milk. Kudos to Netflix. This sounds like a tasty pint that I'm absolutely going to be looking for, Ron. Normally, I hate these kinds of ideas, whether it's like the Taco Bell Hotel or something. But you know what? This kind of makes good sense here. I like the idea of combining a snack and, and watching television and the flavors with the pretzels and the chocolate. And the peanut butter, that's pretty pretty spot on. 
Netflix and Chilled is great. However, if you go to Ben and Jerry's website, they actually have a little quiz you can take. Fill out a couple of questions. It will tell you what you should watch on Netflix and what you should Ooh. eat with it. Yeah, they told me that I should have a pint of half-baked ice cream and watch Arrested Development. So I may do that tonight. I didn't know that Netflix was employing their algorithm in that way, Jason. Well, they got to do something. I tell you, every time I go on that platform, I can't figure out what to watch, and so I end up exiting. And you know what, Ron? You you make those jokes about the Taco Bell Hotel and Resort. (laughs) Yes. But that thing sold out in two minutes, and they're they're absolutely going to bring it back to I'm too much of a curmudgeon, I guess. All right. Ron Gross, Emily Flip, and Jason Moser. We'll see you a little bit later in the show. This week, Comcast unveiled details on its new streaming service, Peacock. So, other than the unfortunate name, what do investors need to know? Up next, we will dig into that and more with analyst Tim Byers. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Tim Byers covers media and entertainment for The Motley Fool. This week, producer Matt Greer caught up with Tim to talk about the video streaming wars, the launch of Comcast's new service, and Matt kicked things off by getting Tim's thoughts on the latest news about Amazon. Big news from Amazon. The Wall Street Journal reporting this week that Amazon has lifted its ban on FedEx ground for third-party prime shipments. Okay. So, what does this move mean for Amazon, and what does it mean for FedEx? Because Amazon seems to pack a real punch here. Yeah, they they really do pack a big punch. And don't you think it's fascinating that Amazon actually gets to say, "Okay, the the ban on FedEx is lifted." How amazing is that that you get to see Amazon exerting this kind of power? I I really think this is the story here, Mac. When you think about where Amazon has come, and now they're building this logistics business as a kind of a, a third leg in the stool. You know, it's it's classically been e-commerce, right? Then it's been Amazon Web Services. I wouldn't yet consider entertainment a, a classic leg in the Amazon stool because it it hasn't really been a big business yet. But logistics really is going to be that that third big uh, leg in the stool, and and they're building a massive logistics business. I'm just looking at some numbers here. So, according to some data that I found here. Amazon already delivers 2.5 billion packages per year just for itself. FedEx delivers 3 billion and UPS delivers 4.7 billion. So this is with Amazon lifting the ban on FedEx and really all this was about is if you wanted to get a package, you wanted to order on Amazon from another store and have it delivered to you, you could choose at least you used to be able to choose to have FedEx deliver it for you. Or you could have Amazon deliver it for you, but then because of FedEx's own issues, Amazon said, nope, we're taking that option away. If you buy on Amazon, whether it's our store or a third-party store, you don't get to use FedEx until they fix their issues. And so now that ban has been lifted. But talk about the market power of already challenging FedEx in deliveries to begin with. They're competing in this business, and they're already right on the, you know, nipping at their heels in terms of the total volume. I think this is a statement about the weakness of FedEx as a company. Okay, let's turn our attention to cybersecurity. Tim, news this past week that Microsoft Windows had a serious flaw that would allow an attacker to assume control of a tool that verifies software prior to downloading it. Now, that's not really the story here. The story is the NSA found the flaw. But instead of keeping the info to themselves and exploiting that flaw for their own purposes, the NSA instead releases the details 
publicly. What does that mean for investors? What does that mean for cybersecurity stocks? You know, what's what's really interesting about this is that the NSA would typically keep this and use it as a weapon, you know, for for their own purposes uh, because cyber warfare is a real thing. The fact that the NSA released it, what the, that tells you two things. The first thing it tells you is that the severity of this bug is is massive. It was a really big security flaw, and it could affect you know billions of people. There are lots of Windows users around the world, so it, it's a it's a serious vulnerability. The second thing is is that the the threat profile has changed. Instead of there being just hackers in you know an attic or a basement or a coffee shop, you know, and those being the ones that are are you know most likely to cause the most damage, it's really states now. It's state sponsored. It's Iran. It's China. It's you know other countries that are not necessarily our friends that are using these exploits to you know find their way to government data through maybe just innocent third party citizens so you really have to lock this down now what this means is that you know from an investor standpoint the cybersecurity market is incredibly important and how about a name is there a name or a couple of names in that space that we should watch yeah i think i'll give you 3 I, because I think they, they play in slightly different places. The first one I'll give you is Palo Alto Networks, ticker P-A-N-W. And Palo Alto is, is famous for its next-generation firewall. So this is the kind of thing, it's like on the front lines, um, you know, as the attacker is coming at you, you know, you're like building the wall, you make the wall bigger. Yeah, and, and in the case of a next-generation firewall, it's a little smart. It might have, you know, some weaponry in it. So as the charge is coming at you, it's already actively firing back. And, and you know, so a, a firewall is sort of a front line of defense. Palo Alto Networks is very good at this. It has some other products besides this, but they're pretty well known for that firewall. CrowdStrike is is a newer company, a relatively new IPO that builds software and little agents on uh, endpoint devices. So what that means is, Mac, like your iPhone, my iPhone, those things are both areas where you can be vulnerable. So you put a CrowdStrike piece of software on there, and it tells you whether or not uh, you know there that you are. It tells you whether or not you're vulnerable. Maybe you're being attacked. It sort of secures the devices that make the edge of the internet. And then finally, I'll give you Elastic, which is also a relatively new IPO. Elastic is an interesting company that does a lot of things with data. It's really good at searching corporate data. And another, in terms of security, it's really good at searching for threats and signals that your network may be compromised. This is called a, a security information and event management system, a SIM. And Elastic is doing some interesting things. And I think those three companies are really worth watching. Tim, let's turn our attention to the battle for the living room. Now, we are taping this midday Thursday. Later today, NBC is going to unveil their new streaming service, Peacock. Now, we don't have the details. We know it's going to launch in April. We know it will include some old content, like The Office, and some new content, Yes, a reboot of Punky Brewster. Tim, are you excited as an investor about NBC's streaming service, Peacock? You know, I, I think about this in terms of how Warren Buffett talks about this, where you always have the innovator and the imitator, and then you have the idiot. And I feel like NBC is walking around with a big idiot sign around its neck with this thing. I mean, we don't know the whole thing. Let, let's be fair. Um, you know, it, it could be amazing. Certainly putting the office on there, great. But I don't see how this makes space 
in a market that's already saturated. I mean, let's let's just take Disney Plus for a second. I know we're going to talk about Disney Plus, and and I was spectacularly wrong about the rollout of Disney Plus. But here's what's interesting, and I wonder how many times you can repeat this. Disney Plus has gotten so much from just one new original. So here's I guess here's my question for 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 the dozens of listeners is is the Punky Booster reboot anywhere in the league of the Mandalorian? My answer is no. And if it's not in the league of the Mandalorian, then then what can we expect from Peacock? I think it's very little. Now, I, I think it's worth noting, as you mentioned earlier, you were on the show in September. Yes, I and was. You were also a little skeptical about Disney Plus. Oh, you can and say, but well, you could go hard. You could go harder than that. Yeah. I, I think, I think you could say, I, I had a little bit of a hot take on Disney Plus. I really skewered them for their pricing because it put Disney Plus at the most premium level, a little bit above Netflix, and I thought that was going to hurt them. And and not only did it not hurt them, the actual, the opposite was true. Disney Plus has just destroyed. I mean, they've destroyed on every level, you know, from and, and what surprises me the most here, Mac, is that when you look at, uh, you know, the Mandalorian, there, there was a, a bit of data taken by this company called Parrot Analytics. And so when you look at a streaming service, we don't have typical ratings data. So what you can look at is online expressions of demand. That's what Parrot Analytics specializes in. So this is like a, you know a search where you're looking for say like the Mandalorian, or you're you're saying like on uh, Facebook, man, I cannot wait to see tonight's episode of the Mandalorian. That's an online expression of demand, and and in at, at its peak, the Mandalorian was hitting. 140 million expressions of demand, which is massive. Now, by contrast, Apple TV Plus, their biggest winner in this area was C. You know, the uh, the original starring Jason Momoa of uh, Aquaman fame or Game of Thrones fame, depending upon you know your you know pick your pick your favorite uh, character that he plays. In in any event, Disney Plus is so far ahead of everybody else, even including, arguably, over the past couple of months, Netflix, I, I think they have as essentially cemented themselves as the number two. I mean, sorry, Amazon, you are no longer number two. This is Disney Plus's game. It is Disney Plus and Netflix, and everybody else is a pretender. And you mentioned Netflix. What do you think about Netflix going forward? I really like Netflix. I mean, one of the things I said, and I, I think you asked me about this, was you know that their advantages were that they had these really great relationships with with actors and talent, and and scale is their other big advantage. Um, it's possible. I, I I think it's too early to say this for sure, but it's certainly possible that some of the the relationships with the talent, you know, the directors, the writers, the actors maybe fading a little bit not because Netflix is bad but because these other options are so good and there's so much money flowing into this um, but having said that I mean look you know Netflix has built on it on the cloud it has built on AWS a massive a scaled up global TV network no one has matched that no one is getting close to it it's over 190 countries and look I mean over the fast past five quarters, Netflix has had uh, more revenue from its international streaming operation than its U.S. streaming operation. Um, I think that is incredibly impressive. I think it's only going to get bigger. This is, an, you know, Jim Mueller has said this many times. I mean, he's the he's the best when it comes to talking about 
uh, about Netflix, and he's right. This is an international growth story, and it is the best, by far the best growth story in streaming internationally. And 24 Oscar nominations, not too shabby. Not too shabby. We also have to talk Apple TV+. Plus. They launched in November. You were on the show in September. Yep. So what do you think of how things are going so far for Apple TV? Because in September, um, you, you really made the point that you felt like they needed to compete on price because they couldn't really compete on right. content. And, and they've done that. I mean, you know, so by, by virtue of going out and offering a year of free subscription if you buy the Apple TV hardware. I mean, they have really seeded the market by, by doing that. They also lowered the price, so if you already had an Apple TV, it was easy to get in. It does look like they have a fair number of subscriptions. It's it's not Disney uh, Disney Plus uptake, but it looks like it's decent. And and what's what's interesting is that the content is maybe starting to turn, and I find this very interesting. So there is there's a new series that is is actually premiering this week as we tape called Little America. It's a series of real life immigrant stories, and so far on Rotten Tomatoes, it is getting a hundred percent. You know, in terms of of critical reviews, that I think Apple needs that. I, I don't think necessarily that drives return directly, but when you are in the position of being the company that's like, okay, we have to compete on price. Our content is nah. You know, it's not great, but it's but it's okay. You'll be able to tolerate it once you start changing that dynamic and coming out with really very well received programming. I think you change the dynamic a little bit, and 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 that's a big game changer. The other thing that's relatively new is they signed a five year deal with Richard Plepler, and for those who don't know, uh, Richard Plepler was uh, for years the the CEO of HBO. So this is the guy that brought in Game of Thrones. This is the guy that brought in Veep. So Apple has thrown a lot of money at this guy, a 5-year deal to create content that he envisions that can really, you know, bring people into the Apple TV platform. I think that's a genius move. I mean, you really do need to up your content game if you want to compete and Apple is playing to win. Okay, Tim. Well, you have given us a lot of food for thought. And I'm going to ask one more question. I'm going to push my luck here because you are one of our resident cloud experts. And I've heard you do this great breakout session on investing in the cloud. And you make the point that we're still in the early innings when it comes to spending on cloud-based software and cloud-based infrastructure. So as we wrap up here, how about a couple of cloud-based companies that are on your radar? If I'm just getting to know this space, maybe a few companies that yeah. I can look at. Yeah, and and let's be clear about what we're talking about. When we're talking about the cloud, we're talking about using the internet as as essentially your uh, the place where you go to get all of the software that you need to start and run a business. So we're talking about Shopify. We're talking about Amazon. When you log into a browser, uh, then you are you're getting the software that you need. That is the cloud. The internet is the cloud. But what's changed about it is that there are businesses that used to buy their own equipment, they used to make their own software, but instead of just doing that, um, now to start a business, really what you're doing is swiping a credit card and logging into Amazon Web Services and getting the things that you need to say, uh, get computing power, get some storage, things like that. Now, that's been true for a little while, but the reason I think it's early innings is Netflix. And let me explain what I mean by this. So, in 2008, Netflix owned a lot of its own equipment, uh, but as it was amping up its streaming operations, 
the the thing that it did was start to move to Amazon Web Services. It took eight years, but they finally moved 100% to AWS in 2016. And I think that was a moment. So that's you know, a little, little less than four years ago, the majority of businesses said, okay, in order to get started, in order to start doing things like e-commerce or logistics, we're going to start by building up a cloud presence. And because of that, there are a whole crop of new businesses that are serving that need. So two companies, you asked me for two companies here, two that I really like. I already talked about Elastic. Elastic is a very interesting company, and just to super simplify it, so when you go to Google, you or I go to Google, we're searching for stuff online. When people use Elastic, you're searching for stuff inside your company. And so they've built a Google for company data. It's really fascinating. It's very flexible. It's built on open source, which means largely free software. But it's it's incredibly flexible and really popular with developers. Another one I like, you may actually have, if you're listening, it's called Dropbox. And I talked about this at the Capital Discovery Summit. It's a company that basically makes a personal cloud for you on your computer. And you just you know store store your files, store your systems in the cloud. But they've gotten very creative about how they link up with services like Slack and and other cloud services. So Dropbox is a way for you to store everything you need, access it very quickly. They generate a ton of cash. I really like that company. But just to be clear here, Tim, you don't like the prospects for a punky Brewster reboot. I really don't. I mean, if if you're look, I mean, you know, when I was what. 11 years old, let's say. Sure, I would have been all in on Punky Brewster. Not anymore, Mac. Sorry. Selling your Punky Brewster shares. Yes, selling my Punky Brewster shares. Tim Byers from the Motley Fool's Colorado office in studio. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mac. Really appreciate it. Good to be back. Up next, if you're building a watch list, we've got a few stocks for your consideration. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. All right, before we get to the stocks on our radar, quick shout-out to Molecule, which is reimagining the future of clean air, starting with the air purifier. Their technology has been personally effective and verified by science, but most importantly, it's been tested by real people, including me. Molecule's given allergy and asthma sufferers around the country an all-new experience. Breakthrough Pico technology across a range of products provides a solution for the entire home when it comes to air purification. So, no matter how big your place is, you can choose the option that's best for your place. That could be the Molecule Air for large rooms. Maybe it's the Molecule Air Mini for smaller rooms. The American Lung Association says more than 140 million Americans are living with unhealthy air, so don't be one of them. If you've made a New Year's resolution, just go on and tack on the resolution of improving the air in your place. It's easy to use. It looks great. It's got this solid aluminum shell. It fits in any room in your house. And the best thing I can say about it is it works. Their air purifiers work. I I sleep so much better when I've got a molecule air purifier in my room, destroying pollen. For 10% off your first air purifier, visit Molecule.com and use the promo code FOOL10 at checkout. That's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com and use the promo code FOOL10. All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar. 
As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio once again with Jason Moser, Emily Flippin, and Ron Gross. Time for the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Steve Broido, is going to hit you with a question. Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at? Just a radar stock for me, not a recommendation yet, but it is a recommendation in our rule breaker service, and it is Fresh Pet. FRPT, leading provider of refrigerated pet food and treats, sold in branded refrigerators, more than 20,000 retail locations, first mover advantage, strong network of branded fridges, revenue growth is accelerating, companies calling for 26% growth for the full year, and they've turned a profit in the two of the past four quarters and could be full year profitable this year. Steve, question about Fresh Pet? Do you think we're moving to a world where pets will seek more diversity in their diet? Because my cats eat the same thing every day, and I wonder if we're going to move to a world where they're just going to be requesting different items. You know, that's a world I want to live in, Steve. Jason Moser, what are you looking at? Uh, yeah, the beginning of the week, Teladoc Health, ticker TDOC. They announced a big acquisition of InTouch Health, which is a telehealth service focused on enterprise offerings. Uh, it was an impressive week for the stock. It was up around 14%, which is you know pretty fascinating when normally acquirers get dinged. They kind of have to prove their case over time. But I think the market's enthusiasm is reasonable. Uh, it bumps up revenue guidance for the company, of course. But I mean, yeah, they're paying around six times sales for a company with 75% of the deal being funded with shares at all-time highs. So, relatively cheap currency in building out this virtual healthcare network where there's no real challenger there. So, I think I think the market's looking at this as, as really a, you know, a big opportunity and a market leader. Steve, question about Teladoc? Are we moving to a world where my primary care doc is uh, virtual? I think that's absolutely a distinct possibility. I mean, anything to make that front door a little bit more accessible for patients, and that's how these tele telehealth companies uh, frame themselves, is really the, the, the most logical first step in visiting your doctor. Emily Flippin, what are you looking at? I'm looking at Smile Direct Club, ticker SDC. Ooh. This is a stock that analyst TJ Pickett turned me on to. They make liners that help straighten out your teeth. Their recent non-compete with Align Technologies just went up, and that means that they can start selling wholesale now. The stock is up 50% on the news. Steve, question about Smile Direct? Does it work as well as just regular braces? It probably does. I can't say I have any personal experience using it, but I know it's a heck of a lot cheaper and a heck of a lot easier on your mouth. Three stocks, Steve. You got one you want to add to your watch list? I'm going fresh bet all the way. Nice. All right. Ron Gross, Jason Moser, Emily Flippin. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 